the marvels of Pentecost. Now, I want to thank this congregation today for your kind indulgence. I am operating on a very limited amount of voice power. So I want to thank each of you for your indulgence in what I consider to be a voice that is not necessarily equipped to thunder from this pulpit like I used to like to do. So I'm restrained and I thank you for your indulgence. Our Father and our God this morning on this day of Pentecost, as you have taught us in Romans 12, wherein you said, I beseech thee, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Lord God, today we present our bodies. We're gathered here. Within our bodies, these earthly tabernacles, resides the soul and the spirit. And I plead in the name of Christ that you will take our soul and our spirit, water them, refresh them with the spirit of God. We thank you so much for the gift of your son, for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the word of God. Father in heaven, we just worship you. We praise thee. We magnify your name for your gifts, your blessings, your enduring, unending goodness to us. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We magnify your name. For thine is the glory and the power Thine, O God, is the glory, the power, and the majesty. For thine is the kingdom, O Lord, Jehovah, and thou art the king above all. Both riches and honor belong to thee. And in thine hand is power and might. And in thine hand is goodness, greatness, glory, and victory. And we pray now that you'll be with this service on this historic Pentecost gathering in 2023. In Christ's name we pray and ask it all. Amen. Amen. We want to thank everyone for sharing Pentecost with the congregation here locally. And I truly want to thank the brass choir. I want to thank the vocal choir. I want to thank the kitchen. I want to thank all the people who have made Pentecost such a wonderful experience. For all the unseen, invisible hands that are always doing things, I want to thank everyone here today. So may God be praised and may they be blessed. Now today, being Pentecost, it was the birth of the nation of ancient Israel. 
That's when Israel became a nation. Pentecost 1491. The church of the living God was born at Pentecost 33 AD. So we had a merger of a church and a nation at Pentecost in 33 AD. The marvelous, there's a marvelous connection between Exodus 19 and, ex, and the book of Acts chapter 2. Now, one of the reasons that this is kind of a monumental time here for us in Missouri is because the church is actually celebrating its 82nd year of life in this season right now. 82 years ago, our people traveled and the families that gathered here assembled. That's been quite a while ago. 82 years reaches back a long time. And in that time period, it's amazing to me, I look at all the young people here today, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, when the church was born here and moved here in 1941, we were in the cusp of World War II. That war was a very difficult time for this local church because it robbed us of a lot of men and we didn't have that many to lose. And we barely recovered from that when the Korean War came in 1950, again, taking away young men that had been too, uh, too young to fight in World War II. So that, again, crippled us. But God was merciful. God was gracious. And in the early 60s, a handful of young men, barely in their early and mid-20s, got together and they said, let's reestablish this church anew. Let's invigorate it. That's when the festivals were born. Festival keeping began here in the early 1960s. And it began with a group of young men the older people were happy, but they had lost their physical, mental strength. They had been exhausted by a depression, by Second World War, by the Korean War. And those people, remember, lived without electricity. And everything they did, from scrubbing clothes on a washboard to whatever else they did, was difficult. So they were wore out. But this young group of young men built all the buildings up on top of the hill. There was only one little, one little teeny meeting house. Those young men built a youth camp, a conference center, equipped with dining halls, in those days primitive. But still, remarkable for that time. Amen. Amen. They did that without electricity. Yes. All the lumber was sawed by hand in the building process. It was a hard job. Yes. 
all the foundations were laid by a hand mixer, shoveling the sand, the cement, and the gravel in proper amounts and taking it wheelbarrow at a time. So when I reflect back and I think of how God in his mercy has guided this church, it is a humiliating, humbling, and wonderful way to look at God. As we turn in our Bibles today to the book of Acts, we'll be going to Acts chapter number two. In Acts chapter number two, beloved, we have one of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible. We mentioned the other day that Luke is the author, the inspired author of the Acts of the Apostles, or we could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And he is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. So volume one of St. Luke is his Gospel. Volume number two is the Acts of the Apostles. And they are surely more understandable if read together. Now, when we think of this wonderful event of Pentecost, we know that the Old Testament birth of Pentecost in Exodus 19, when Israel came out of the uh, Egyptian uh, bondage in the time of the Exodus, we know that Pentecost was a God-ordained thing. We just read the verses out of Exodus 19. It was the birth of Israel as a nation. That's when they were called into the very first conditional covenant. You shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is the birth of Israel as a nation. Why is that important? Because the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 closes that chapter by telling us that as long as the sun, the moon, the stars, the ordinances of heaven and earth, as long as this earth is standing, Israel shall never cease from being a nation of people. Doesn't say how big they will be. It says they will never fail. Amen. That's Jeremiah. So this is the important church, really important. We entered into a covenant. We became a covenant people at the birth of the nation at Pentecost, 1491. This is not only the birth of a nation, it is the birth of Israel's separation out from all the other people of the world. That's when we became uh, our own tribal identity. We received our own unique racial identity. Pentecost is a racial, spiritual phenomenon. It carries profound racial and spiritual truth. You cannot understand Pentecost 
apart from understanding the people that God worked with. It's racial to the core. It has nothing to do with multiracial, racial diversity or multiculturalism. There's not a whit of evidence for that in the Bible. So that first covenant then that God made at Pentecost, Exodus 19, it had all the, the outward symbols. It had, it had all the symbols. It had the audio of the wind. It had the visible. It, there was fire at Mount Sinai. There was the voice of God, God's presence at that Pentecost. There was the giving of the law. The law was thundered down from heaven. Divine law, divinely revealed. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on tables of stone. Those were holy days. Holy things happened. And you and I and all of our children need to wrap our arms around these valuable biblical truths and cherish them and propagate them. And not only in our hearts, but in our minds, but in our children, our children. Now, with those thoughts in mind about the Old Testament Pentecost, here we come to the New Testament. Now, the word testament is just another word for covenant. So now we're still in the covenant. We haven't changed gods when we come to the new covenant. It's still the one true holy living God that thundered down from the mount at Mount Sinai. The descendants of the same people, Israelites. Pentecost, New Testament, Acts 2 is spiritual. It's racial. Hasn't lost its spiritual or its racial composition. The Bible is a seamless book. One God, one people, one destiny. God's kingdom on this earth. So now we turn to the book of Acts, and we begin to read. Now, when we look at the composition of the little fledgling church that had survived after the crucifixion of Christ, imagine yourselves living in the first century. As a church body, they had witnessed the beheading of John the Baptist. What a terrible tragedy. They had witnessed the crucifixion of their king. The one they thought that would be crowned, coronated as king, was crucified in the most humiliating death that could be inflicted upon a person. They had watched James the apostle be beheaded. They had watched Stephen be stoned to death. They had watched Christians being persecuted, killed for their faith. 
when they gathered at Pentecost, what brought them there with faith was the resurrection of Christ from the dead. They had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Not raised to be crowned as a king. That's to come later. Because redemption had to precede the kingdom. And a whole church purpose of evangelizing the lost sheep of God's children had to take place. Now, when you read the New Testament, you read about the last days. And we've been in the last days now for a long time. Here's what you need to read and remember every time you read the term last days. Hold on to this. The last days is a, is a meaning that signifies the birth and the second coming of Christ. The birth of Jesus, his second coming within those two points are the last days. The last days are measured by the birth of Christ and his return as king of glory. So we are in the last days. We've been there a while. But most scholars today believe we're in the last of the last days. Because there's a confluence of events coming together unknown in human history unknown in human history. Do you know today, as we gather here, there's greater danger of the total genocide of the white race than we've ever experienced in world history. There is greater danger of our losing the freedom of speech than at any point in the history of the world. You are living in a world where there is no privacy. Technology has evolved to a point where divine intervention is the only thing that's going to spare the salvation of God's children. This new artificial intelligence is designed to put everyone into a digital one world government. There's never been a day there's never been a time when we faced what we face today in the world. And that is one of the reasons, the primary reason, why we all need to be part of a church. It's urgent. It's compelling. It's imperative that you be churched. You cannot expect to survive if you're not connected to the body that you were joined to in baptism. Christ is the head of the church, savior of the body. You need to be with his body. Now, as we look at Pentecost chapter two, we have there 120 Israelites that have survived. They are the survivors. That's Mary, that's Martha, that's Lazarus. That's the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. That is all the apostles minus Judas. 
120 people. That number is significant. Now, just for the heck of it, Nathan, would you count how many people are here today? Let's just see how close we are to that Pentecost at Jerusalem. They were 120 strong. I don't know how many we are here today, but Nathan will tell us. Now, in Acts 2, when they came together, they did not know what was going to happen. Was it just a typical Pentecost? Is this just going to be a typical Pentecost? They didn't know. They're just going to follow the obedience. Because Pentecost was established way back at Exodus and Leviticus. It was to be 50 days after the waving of the first fruits of barley. So 50 days from that day, celebrated during Passover, would always take Israel to the day of Pentecost. And it would always fall on a Sunday. Never be any other day of the week. There's a reason for that. It, you, all you have to do is look at Leviticus 23, 11. It follows the morrow after the Sabbath that falls during unleavened bread. That's why it's always going to be 50 days will be on day number 50 will be on a Sunday. Seven weeks of days, 49, and then the 50th day will always be on a Sunday. You have that count, Nathan? Okay. More, more, than, more than I thought, I guess. All right. So now we're at Pentecost. Here we are. Jesus has ascended to heaven. And he had promised them, he made a promise. Jesus made a promise, actually, days before that happened. Can someone find four people? <laughs> Do we, the cafeteria workers. There's two of them right out there, I see. And the nursery, we've got it. We are officially a Pentecost congregation. That's wonderful, I think that. That makes me feel good. We're at Pentecost now, 120 plus. We actually, we've got more than 120. So now, as we think about this, this wonderful event we're going to read about. Now, because of my voice, I'm going to do simple expository preaching. So what is expository teaching? It's verse by verse. In a very informal sort of way like a expository Bible study. That's why everyone needs to have your Bible open because you need to read the Bible, that's visual, but we need to hear the word, that's audio, and then we need to feel the word and that's spirit. So here we go. Let's read verse one. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. 
That means not until the 50th day after Jesus had resurrected from the biblical Sabbath, uh, the day that followed that, which was on a Sunday. Sunday. Now, we have a book to demonstrate the validity of all this numbers. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. Now that didn't mean they arrived in a Honda Accord. <laughs> they were all in one accord. They were all of one mind. I wonder if we're all of one mind today. I kind of think we are. We may have diversity of, of opinions here and there, but we're generally of one mind. We love the color white. That unites us. We love Jesus Christ. That unites us. We love one another. That unites us. We love God's word. That unites us. We got all kinds of reasons to know that we are within one accord. And suddenly, suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Now, I don't know what these people were thinking when that sound from heaven came. It, it, it's, it sounds like something they were not anticipating as we read on. It reminds me of the story of three husbands waiting in a delivery hospital for their child to be born in a time when fathers were not allowed anywhere close to the birthing process. They were excommunicated. Three men waited for the good news. They did not know it would be daughter or son because no such thing as a sonogram. Well, this was taking place in Minnesota, allegedly, in this mythical story. And uh, as it happened, the nurse came in and told the first father, look, your wife has delivered twins. And he thought that was wonderful. He was a catcher on the Minnesota Twins Club. <laughs> Pretty soon the nurse came in again and she said to the next guy, your wife has just delivered triplets. And he said, oh, good heavens, I work for 3M. <laughs> the other guy, the guy that is waiting, he falls out of his chair <laughs> to the floor. He says, I work for 7-Up. <laughs> so I don't know. I do not know what the disciples thought when they gathered there. They might have been like some of us this morning, sleepy, weary. Nine o'clock had come pretty quick. But suddenly there was a rushing wind. Can somebody make the sound of a rushing wind? That's a pretty poor example. <laughs> Do you remember when Jesus 
told Nicodemus, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But you cannot tell from whence it cometh and whither it goeth. Do you know that the word wind and spirit come from the same root word in both the Hebrew and the Greek? In the Hebrew, it's ruha, wind, spirit, breath. In the Greek, it's pneuma, spirit, wind, breath. Doesn't matter what language you, you go to. So we got now the audible sound of Mount Sinai that happened back there. Now we hear audibly a rushing wind. Came a sound from heaven. Rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were sitting. Do you remember Job? Job's life involved a whirlwind. Wind. And there appeared unto them, verse 3, cloven tongues like fire. And it set upon each of them. Now fire was present at Mount, present at Mount Sinai. Remember? Mount Sinai was smoking. There was fire. There was wind. All the symbols of Pentecost, Old Testament, are now visibly present at the birth of the church in New Testament. New Testament Pentecost, we have the birth of the church. We have the re renewal of the covenant. We're still a covenant people moving from the letter of the law under the old covenant. Now we're going to move to the spirit of the law. In the Old Testament, God wrote the law on tables of stone. In the New Testament, Pentecost, he's going to write the commandments on the tables of the heart. So you look at these commandments today. And the only reason that you can really honor those commandments the way God wants you to is out of love for God, not out of the fear of what's going to happen. Yeah, you need to think about that. But your love for God is why you want to be a covenant keeper. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What in my life is greater than God? That's an idol. Any person or place or event that you hold looking for something that only God can give is idolatry. So here we have fire. Fire is present. It sets on each one of them. Now, by this time, these Israelites must be really coming to life. I don't know how many of them had arrived sleepy. 
But I'm going to tell you, if, if I suddenly felt myself in, enveloped with fire that actually did not burn, did not consume, I would be awake. Now, do you remember, what did God use to guide Israel by night in ancient Israel? A pillar of fire. fire. What did God use in so many ways? What did he use when he wanted to get the attention of Moses? In the desert. Moses is a shepherd in the desert. He used the fire in a burning bush. What captured Moses? The fire. The fire. All through history, God has used the symbol of wind and fire and his presence. His presence. Those are indispensable expressions of God at Pentecost. Now let's read on verse 4. And they were all filled. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, that verse number 4 is probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. So what does it mean? Well, let's read on and we'll come back to that. Again, I invite you to read with me. Let's go to verse number 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now, we said that Pentecost is racial. Don't forget it. The word Jews has reference to the indigenous Jewish, Judean people from the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Not saying there could not have been a sprinkling of other Israelites, but predominantly, 99% of them were Judeans, Benjamites, and from Levi. Now they had been scattered all over. Remember that the crucifixion of Jesus, the beheading of John the Baptist earlier, and then the beheading of James had caused many, many, many of the indigenous Judeans to just go leave Jerusalem. So they had scattered everywhere. We're going to find out where some of them now live. Now when this was noised abroad, verse 6, the multitude came together and were confounded because they heard, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Hold on to the word language here. We are not going to be looking at anything but intelligible language. That's all that's happening here. There, everyone here is going to hear God's truth in their own language, their own dialectal, their own dialect. 
And they were all amazed and marveled. Now watch this, something important coming up. Saying one and another, behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Now what does that mean? They're saying, look, what does this mean? Did you know the Galileans in the first century were the hillbillies? They were the hick class. They were called the Galilean hicks. These apostles were blue collar Galilean laborers, fishermen. They were not the educated. They were not the sophisticated. <laughs> they were not the upper crust of that culture. Are they not all which speak Galileans? How in the world are they speaking a language that we understand? They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Where did all of these hillbillies come from? Now these Judeans coming from all over, some of them may have been much more highly educated. Can't be sure. And how, verse 8, hear we every man in our own tongue. You know what that tongue, that word tongue means? It's language. We hear every man in our own language wherein we were born. Now there's a lot of languages here. Let's read about them. There was the language of Parthia, Medes, Elam El Elamites, the dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia in Egypt, in the parts of Libya, Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews, proselytes. You know what a proselyte is? A proselyte is someone you're trying to win to Christ. You're trying to win to the truth. You invite somebody to come with you to Pentecost. You say, I'm going to Missouri to Pentecost. I'd like you to come with me. What's your goal? Your goal is to proselyte them, to disciple them into the truth. So these proselytes are Israelites who really don't know uh, anything. They're just simply invited. Cretes, strangers, strangers of Rome. Again, that's, those are Israelites living in the city of Rome who are invited to that Pentecost gathering as a means of evangelizing. Judeans and proselytes, Cretes, Arabians, who do speak, hear them speak in our tongues, the wonderful works of God. So now we can see people in these verses, they have been converted in modern theological commentary to a multiracial, racially diverse body of people.
This is the springboard for multicultural plur uh, plurality of races. And ministers up and down the land love to plant their feet here. I promise you, before God in heaven, we're talking about only Israelites here. First of all, they had come to celebrate an Israelite festival. This was an Israelite gathering. They knew that. They were there because they knew under law, God's law, they were commanded to gather at three times every year. Passover, Pentecost. Passover, unleavened bread, Pentecost, and tabernacles. So they gathered from everywhere, three times every year in Jerusalem, if they were possibly able to do that. So we got to get our racial bearings here and hold on to them. Because we live in a generation thrown them away. Now, they were all amazed and were in doubt saying one to another, what meaneth this? What in the world is God trying to tell us what is going on here. Well, a lot of them did not know. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. For the people coming in that didn't understand what was going on, this appeared to be a bunch of people that had to be under the influence of alcohol. Because they're just having, they're seeing things they've never seen before. Fire come down from heaven. Cloven tongues of fire. Rushing wind. They're hearing a language in every class, hearing their own language from the lips of these Galilean hillbilly Christians. This is unspeakably hard for some of these visitors from all these different lands to understand what is going on here. Now, there's a man gathered at Pentecost. He is a man with a colorful history. Most all of the apostles were young men. Did you know that? Did you know the composition of early Christianity was youthful? This church would not be here today without a lot of youth. Back in the 1960s it said, let's revive the church. Peter was not a young man, but most of them were. I didn't say all, but they were a, a youth movement. Why did Jesus work with so many younger people? These apostles have a journey. Most of them will perish 
and give, a, give their lives for their calling, for the church. Most of them will not die pleasantly. They will be beheaded. Peter will be crucified upside down. They were tortured. God chose vigorous youth to endure what he called the apostles to do. But he used one of them in such a marvelous way that today we can only say, what can we say? But God is great in all he does. He called Peter, this is that guy that denied Jesus three times. This is that impetuous Peter, the guy that was always putting his foot in his mouth. This is this Peter that took a sword and lopped off the ear of one of the guys that tried to arrest Jesus. I don't know how long Peter had practiced with his sword, but if you came down on somebody's head and only sliced off their ear, you had to be a pretty good marksman. Peter lopped off an ear. He's an interesting man. God used him on the day of Pentecost. He stood up and he said, what did he say? Let's read about it. Verse 14. Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and he said unto them, Ye men of Judea. Now, hold on to that. He knows that all these visitors originate out of the land of Judea. You've got to hold on to this, folks. You've got to read your Bible carefully. Ye men of Judea, all ye that dwell in Jerusalem. So he's talking about the ones that are indigenous to Jerusalem versus the ones that have come in that were originating out racially speaking, out of the land of Judea, all Israelites. Let this, let this be known unto you and hearken to my words. Now, I like the way Peter, he speaks with authority. Hearken to my words. Listen to me. That's Peter. For these are not drunken as you suppose seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It was too early in the morning to get intoxicated. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now I'm going to have Nathan come up and read verse 17 through verse 21. This is a reenactment of the Old Testament prophet Joel, and it's very important. The reason I'm asking you to bear with us as we read these verses is because there is a first occurrence of these 
verses right here. It's called the early reign. And there's going to be a second fulfillment called the latter reign. When Jesus returns, there is going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the surviving remnant that will be on this earth when he comes back. So, Nathan, if you could read from verse 17 to verse 21, and we'll amplify your voice on the speaker. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants, and on my servants, and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord that the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, notice, it shall come to pass in the last days. The last days are measured from the first advent of Christ to his second coming. And the prophecy of Joel begins that period. It will end that period. It will consummate that period. Now, it would take some time to do this. We can't take that time now. But you can go to the book of Joel, and you can confirm that the latter rain will happen when the consummation of the ages comes and Christ returns in glory. So this is very important. Now, did you see the inclusion of young men and young women. Your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. You see how God is prophesying that young people are going to be drawn in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, at the, simultaneously, the old men will keep dreaming dreams. So all you men that consider yourselves old, put your vision on. Dream dreams. Dream dreams of greatness for God and his kingdom. Visualize what great things God can do in our time of history. This is an exciting time to be living, church. Why did God choose you for this season? Do you know that the prophets would have loved to have been in this season of history? We can be grateful that we're living right here in this season of time. Now, I'm not, I didn't say that God saved the best for the last. I'm just saying God knows what he's doing. God ordained your season, your time in history, right the way it is. So now we have come to the first indication 
of salvation. Look at verse 21. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that has to do with the risen Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah that has come. When it says all flesh in these verses, remember the Bible is written to a family of people. If I said everyone here at Pentecost, let's join together as one people, and somebody read about that a thousand years from now, I have no legitimate right to think that this incorporated all of Vernon County or all the state of Missouri. The Bible is written to, for, and about one people. Joel prophesied to one people, Israel. Joel did not preach, prophesy to the whole world. We've got to get this right. We've got to get our heads screwed on right. We can't be cross-threaded Christians. And that's how many Christians are now living. Their, their heads are on, are cross-threaded. Let's go to verse 22. Now, if you've got a marking pen, use it. I'm going to use a Bible verse to confirm that. Isaiah 23, 18. Who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord, Jehovah, and perceived and heard his word, who hath marked his word. A marked up Bible is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Verse 22 deserves a, a, an underlining. Ye men of Israel. Peter is addressing the entire body of 3,000 members of that, of that gathering. There's at least 3,000 people there. How many people were at the Pentecost feast in Exodus 19? The entire body that came out of Egypt. Between two and a half and three million people. How many died before the end of the first Pentecost day? Come on, help me. How many people died the first Pentecost out of Egypt? 3,000 people. 3,000 people died as a result of the golden calf experience that's taking place while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. Israelites, if God disowned us because of the behavior of our people, we would have been long, long, long forgotten of God. God chose us not because we were going to be righteous and faithful. 
He chose us for one reason. It's found in Psalm 115, verse 3. It's one of my very favorite verses. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. It's none of our business why God chose Israel. Now God does tell us. He gives us some big clues. And it's, that's a whole other sermon. The clues of how and why God called Israel. But let's come back here now. And let's notice, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders. Now, hold on. Everybody there by now had heard of the miracles and wonders of Jesus in his physical ministry. He had raised the dead, opened the eyes of the blind. He had loosened the tongue of, of, the, of those who could not speak. He had opened the ears of the deaf. Jesus had done marvelous miracles. They knew this. All these people knew that these miracles and wonders and signs had happened, which God did by him in the midst of of you as yourselves also know. Now, Israelites gathered here today. I'm going to say something now. I hope it will not be misunderstood. And I pray with all my heart it isn't. But I can't be sure that it won't be. We have a problem in Israel today. And it's been present throughout my lifetime. You know what that main problem is? It is the unwillingness of Israel to give to Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the preeminence that the Bible gives him. We simply have not done that as a collective body. I don't know how many Israelites that I've met along the path they know Jehovah, they know Yahweh, but they don't know Jesus. Yahweh is incomprehensible. You don't know him, you can't know him. He's incomprehensible. Jesus is the revelation of that one God we call Jehovah or Yahweh. He is the one who is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. May I remind you of what Jesus himself told the Pharisees. And they wanted to kill him for this. He said, verily, verily, before Abraham was, I am. That's John 8, 58. That, that verse almost cost Jesus his life. 
I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. How many times did Jesus have to tell us who he is? And we've got hard-headed Israelites who have yet to give him his honorable due. The Bible doesn't say for no reason that every tongue will confess. That's Israelite tongue. That every Israelite knee will bow, will bend, and it will bend to Jesus, Christ the Son of God. Now, if I was born a Greek-speaking person, I'd be pronouncing Jesus in the Greek language. If I was born a Hebrew, if I had been born as a Hebrew, speaking Hebrew, I would use the Hebrew name. It's not Yahshua. It's Jehoshua. That's what I would be using. The other pronunciation is a Yiddish pronunciation. I'm telling you folks, we... We don't need to divide over the sacred name. Help us. God help us. Just let Jesus Christ be the one who holds preeminent. So now, and you're not going to hear me fight with anybody over this. I'm not here to wrestle anybody about some point with regard to to the sacred name. I'm just telling you that when this most celebrated apostle of the entire Bible in terms of his writings, that's St. Paul, when he stood for his life to recount the experience of what happened to him on the road to Damascus, can I show you for a moment, what he said. If you'll turn to the book of Acts, we're still in that marvelous book called the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter chapter number 26. Paul is before Agrippa. He's giving his defense before Agrippa, and I'm going to have my brother Nathan come up and read again. We'll be in Acts 26, beginning at verse 13. And we'll read verses 13 through 15. Now, please, you know, I want to thank everybody. I think everybody's being very attentive here, here today, even though you don't like the sound of my gravelly voice. But let, let's turn to Acts to Acts 26, 13 through 15, and watch carefully. This is St. Paul, the author of 50% of the New Testament. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me, 
And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Notice, notice, verse 15, get your marker ready. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. What language is St. Paul speaking in? What's he addressing here? I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul. But he did not carry the Hebrew name of Jesus forward. It's not there, folks. It was translated from Paul's Greek to the translation that we now have in the King James Bible. It's never been Jehoshua. Never been used in the English. We've just made a mountain out of something that didn't have to make be made. It's been a very diversionary, diversionary thing in Israel. It has divided whole Israelite bodies, and that's so shameful. But we're back to Acts chapter two. And thank you very much. Now, I know time is going rapidly. The sermon that's underway here that we're reading is the sermon that launched Christianity. This is the most important sermon, theologically speaking, in the New Testament. It is the foundation stone and let me tell you a verse you need to hold on to. Amen. Ephesians 2, verse 20, which says the church is founded, grounded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The prophets and the apostles. You need both Old and New Testament. This is a foundation stone by the apostle called of God. And he says in verse 22, now watch closely the, the words we we're going to read. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Peter is now drawing this whole body of people at, gathered at Pentecost in Jerusalem. He's drawing them to the whole purpose of his theological treatise. He wants them to know 
that the author of their salvation is going to be the resurrected Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. That's his purpose here. He says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Wow, this is important. The foreknowledge of God, that's the sovereignty of God. That's what God ordained before the foundation of the world. That Jesus would suffer and bleed and die. But now watch. Please, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Do you see what this apostle under inspiration of the Holy Ghost is doing right now? If you are alive in the spirit, you will notice that Jesus Christ, the featured subject here, that these men of Israel are being told by the apostle, look, in the sovereignty of God, God willed this to happen. But God married man's responsibility with God's sovereignty right here. Right here they're married in this verse. Because what God ordains is what is his rightful ability and choice to do. God can ordain to do anything he wants to do. Whatsoever he did in the heavens, he pleased. Whatsoever God pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas. That's Psalm 135, verse 6. At the same time God ordained for the death of Jesus, he placed on man the responsibility not to kill the Son of God. Who would want to crucify Jesus? So God holds man responsible for his actions. I don't know how many are seeing this. But the age-old question of theology, philosophical theologians, philosophers have argued for ages over how man's responsibility matches the sovereignty of God. God holds us responsible for our actions, our behaviors. At the same time, God's will is going to be done by somebody. And it's going to be done by those who do not exercise personal responsibility. They bear culpability then for violating God's law. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now Peter in this sermon, beloved, is going to take you into some very heavy, heavy theology. This blue-collar fisherman is demonstrating the highest level of a theological 
genius right now. And it's not Peter at all. It's the Holy Spirit that has taken this blue collar fisherman, this hillbilly from Galilee, is now giving one of the most profound theological lessons ever delivered through human lips in the history of the world. And a verse by verse, verse by verse analysis of this chapter would reveal exactly what I'm saying. So hold on to this chapter because the time has elapsed for us to do anything except bring this to closure. So now join with me in the closure. I know the apostle Peter would say, shame on you. You have left out a good part of my lesson. But with all deference to the apostle Peter, and I'm anxious to see him and meet him, we are going now to the closing statements of this wonderful epistle. Peter gives a closing, church, that is one of the most amazing, spectacular closings. I don't believe it's been repeated in 2,000 years of preaching. It's not Peter at all. Peter is just the instrument. But God demonstrated here on this day of Pentecost 33 AD, a closing of a sermon that bore more fruit than any sermon that has ever been preached in 2,000 years. Let's read about this wonderful closing. It begins in verse 36. So we're jumping all the way, all the way from verse 23 to 36. Now before I leave, verse 24, the Holy Spirit is prompting me to say, don't you dare forget to tell these people what's in verse 24. Because in verse 24 it says this, regarding Jesus, whom God hath raised up, the resurrection of Jesus, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death could not hold Jesus. He broke the chains of death. Do you know now, church, that every sermon in the book of Acts had the fundamental teaching of repentance on the basis of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Every sermon preached in Acts. And this is a book that everybody needs to read, study, go back and read and study and go back again and read and study. I, I believe I've read the book of Acts over a hundred times. And I'm, I'm just beginning to find out how much I really 
how little I know. I know more and more about, less and less about the book of Acts. Covers a period of 30 years. It's the earliest history of the Christian church. It chronicles the most foundational years of the church. Every sermon called people to repentance. Every sermon called them to Christ, his death and resurrection. That was the clarion meaning of apostolic Christian. Faith, repentance, baptism, devotion, discipleship to Christ. Just wanted to make mention of that. Now, can you imagine all these visitors hearing this? Paul is wanting to convert their hearts. He's wanting to take Israelites who only know Yahweh or Jehovah, and he wants them to meet Jesus, the incarnate God, who's come in human form, very God and very man. So he says in verse 36, would you read this with me? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know it. All the house of Israel. Hey, where is all the world? Has nothing to do with all the world. God called Israel to be a separated people. And he wrote the Bible for that separated people. Therefore, let the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Nothing could be more biting than for these Israelites to hear that some of them had been in the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Peter is now indicting them. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know assuredly that the same Jesus whom you have crucified is Lord in Christ. Amen. Now I'm telling you folks, that's an indictment. Yeah. That is an indictment. Yeah. What did they do with that indictment? How did they respond? What did they say? Let's go to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked, converted, in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Some of these people had betrayed Christ. Others had denied him. Others had refused to believe he was the true Messiah. Only a handful, 120 from all the thousands that ate the loaves and the fishes, believed in Jesus. The rest of them went along for the ride. That's modern Christianity. Only a small remnant really have bought into Jesus, Christ, his kingdom, and his racial truth. Only a handful. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. We're closing. And said unto Peter, rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
And this is what Peter told him. Here it is. Oh, how important these words are. Then Peter said unto them, Repent. Repent. And be what? For the remission of sins. Now, wait a minute. They were not going to be saved by baptism. Don't you ever let someone teach you the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That's the idea that you are saved by water. Are you with me? You're not saved by the water. They were baptized for and because of what was happening in their minds and hearts. They were coming under conviction that the blood of Christ had been shed for their sin. That's why they're being baptized. The word, the word, English word for in the Greek would become, the word because would be, because of their conviction and their coming to repentance, Peter could say, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of, because of your conviction. Baptism is the sign. It's the seal of the outward confirmation of an inward transformation. Baptism is what is outwardly demonstrating that you have bought into Jesus Christ as the only acceptable answer for your sin problem. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Hold on. I'd like you to read verse 39 with me. If I were to tell you today that verse 39 has been totally ignored by about 85% of all Israelites, I would be right. You might think I'm wrong, but I'm right. Let's read it together, verse 29. For the promise unto you is unto you and to your children. Now stop right there. That's a complete thought. When God made a promise to Abraham, he didn't throw the children away. Modern Israel does that. You know they do? Why do they? They don't bring them under the covenant. Modern Israel says, my children don't need to come under the covenant. They don't need baptized. When they come to a certain age, they can decide. What did they do in the Old Testament? When did, when did Abraham bring Isaac into the covenant? Help me. On the eighth day of life. That's when Isaac became a member of the covenant. The promise is to you. The promise 
is taking you back to Abraham. Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of the promise of redemption out of which salvation comes. The promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off. Who's this afar off? Israel in dispersion. The millions that are in dispersion who are yet to hear this glorious gospel. And when, and with many other words, he testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward, that's perverted, perverted generation. The word that Jesus used to describe the generation of first century Roman culture was perversion. What word would you use to describe America today? A culture of perversion. Culture of utter perversion. Now watch closely. Verse 41. What a verse. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That is singularly the greatest closing in the history of the world of a gospel sermon. Today, Israelites, if there's any way that you and I can capture the devotion of those people, it would be marvelous. If God is going to speak to a generation now, he will call them back to this foundation. They that gladly received his word were baptized by the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual transformation that Jesus had come to save their souls. And then, verse 42, what did they do thereafter? And this, my friend, is what you and I had better be doing. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. A lot of people don't like the word doctrine, but they better get used to it because it's foundational. It's foundational. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. If you believe a doctrine that cannot be tied back to apostolic Christianity, throw it away. If it's new, it isn't true. If it's true, it isn't new. Hold on to that. There's a lot of Johnny-come-lately doctrines peddling, being peddled in ancient Israel today, being peddled in modern Israel. A lot of doctrinal teaching is 
new heresy resurrected from a previous heretical grave. One of them is preterism. Did you ever hear of preterism? Preterism is the idea that Jesus has already come, that the resurrection is past. Now, I know it takes somebody that's lost their marbles to believe that, but some people do. Well, there's hyper-preterism and there's mild preterism. Yeah, we know that history is very real. Oh, how did we get off on that? They continued steadfastly in the apostle doctrine and in fellowship. Folks, listen. You don't know what happens when you intermingle with other Christian people. You are in the body of a church that's united to Christ. When you're in the body, you've got to have fellowship. You'll die without it. Spiritually, you will die. You cannot live in isolation. You cannot. Breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul and wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Now, final statement. We're coming into some serious days, folks. And I'm convicted, convinced in my heart that people who are devoted and dedicated to the calling and election of their God will be able to do marvels and wonders in days to come. It's my humble opinion that God can shield his remnant from any power that's raised against him. That there is nothing that can touch God's people if their heart is where God wants them to be. And I believe that the call of Pentecost is a call to spiritual, racial, covenantal truth that will bind us as one people, one family of people with one God, one faith, one baptism, one racial family. Let's stand.